Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. Let's give our attention then to to Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness... How will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Most gracious Father, as we look at your word this morning, I ask that you would strengthen me by your spirit that I may preach clearly, that our eyes might be set again on Christ, who is our hope, who is our salvation. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, Brent, I really appreciate your prayer uh, for, for my clarity of thought this morning uh, in this possibly difficult text. I would change one word, though. I would say in this extremely difficult text. Uh, I, I titled the, pa- the sermon, That Passage, uh, and Sabrina texted me. was like, is that, did you mean to put that? And I did, because this is that passage. This is that cut off your arm, cut off your foot, gouge out your eye passage that, that a lot of times we look at and we're like, well, it can't mean what, we, what it seems to be saying. And that's about all the thought that we give to it. And we just move on to, to Mark chapter 10. Like, I don't see a whole lot of Christians that have chopped off arms and stuff, uh, though there were some in church history. Uh, some of the church fathers took this passage in its most literal sense and started cutting off uh, various appendages. Um, that's not what it's asking us to do here, okay? So, so don't leave yet, okay? Don't, don't leave yet. That's not what it's asking for. But this is a very difficult passage for a number of reasons, First of all, there's just this like extreme kind of hyperbolic metaphor that Jesus uses about cutting stuff off if you sin. And we, we look at that, and all of us have sinned. Every single one of us has. Every single one of us has caused somebody to sin. And so we read this passage, and we're like, you know what? Let's just move along, because this is going to get entirely too uncomfortable entirely too quickly. It's also difficult because if you're, if you're an astute Bible reader and you're reading any modern translation, you'll notice that there is no verse 44 and there is no verse 46. It just goes 42, 43, 45, 47, 48. And the, the, the biblical author, or not biblical authors, but the, the guys who, who put the verses in, they didn't just suddenly forget how to count. That's, that's not what happened here. Rather, this is a situation where as we have learned more about the oldest and best manuscripts of the Bible, we've, we've learned and we've realized by, by doing all of this kind of high-level textual comparison stuff 
that verses 44 and 46, which by the way, were just what verse 48 says. It wasn't something different. It was just verse 48 was repeated multiple times. And what we've realized is that that wasn't how it was written in the original text from what we can tell based on the oldest and best manuscripts. It just, it just wasn't set up that way. And so in, in modern translations, basically anything after the King James Version, in modern translations, verses 44 and 46 aren't there. And the reason I bring all this up and go into it is because as you read that, and as you see verse 44 and 46 gone, I don't want you to lose confidence in the Bible. I don't want you to go, oh, so all the critics are right. We don't actually know what should be in the Bible. No, this actually, in my opinion, proves quite the opposite. We, we've got guys that, and, and men and women that are brilliant, that are doing high-level, difficult textual studies and are able to say, you know what? No, the original manuscripts didn't have verses 44 and 46 in them. And this is going to come up again at the end of Mark with what's called the longer ending of Mark. So when you see stuff like that, one, you shouldn't doubt that like, oh, we don't know what's in the Bible. Not at all. We're, we actually have a high degree of confidence. That's why we're willing to, to exclude something that, that for a while we thought was there. We're willing to be open about those, those difficulties but they don't need to cause us to lose confidence. So that's one difficulty that as we, as we look at this. Another difficulty is there, there's a few words in here, one in particular, that we've just got to kind of really struggle with. How should we even translate this word? How should, how should we bring it into English? Because it wildly changes the passage. And so that's where we're going to start today as we look at this sermon. If you look at verse 42, it says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin. And it's that word to sin there. It's not the, the normal uh, hamartia word and, and, and verb in, in Greek. That, it's not the normal word that is behind sin in the English here. And in fact, if you go to other modern translations, it'll say something like whoever causes one of these little ones offense or whoever causes one of these little ones to turn away from me. And, and that's a significant difference, isn't it? Because that changes the entire point of the passage. Because if we just read it as whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin... And, and it's the same word, by the way, when it says, if your hand causes you to sin, if your foot causes you to sin, if your eye causes you to sin, right? If we just leave that as sin, then, then here's where we end up. If I do something to someone and it makes them mad and they, you know, sinfully dog cuss me because I've made them so mad. Well, then it's better for me to have a millstone tied around my neck and, you know, get the concrete boot, so to speak. Or if I do something myself that causes me to sin, then it's better for me to start cutting appendages off. The problem with, the problem with this is, it, that, the problem with that interpretation is, it doesn't fit with the rest of the Bible. It doesn't fit with our assurance of pardon that we read this morning. My little children, I write these things to you so that you might not sin. Okay, so of course we're not supposed to sin. We're all clear on that. But if anyone does sin, and then what follows isn't concrete boots and losing limbs, 
It's if anyone does sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So, what the heck is going on here? Well, the word that's behind this translation, and and I do this occasionally, I'm I'm not a fan of, of how the ESV translated this here. The word that's behind this translation is scandalizo. It's scandalize someone. Okay? And the idea everywhere else in Mark that this is used, almost everywhere in Matthew that it's used. In fact, you know what? Almost everywhere in the entire New Testament that this verb is used, except for here and in the parallel passages to this, it's not translated as sin. It's translated either as offense, like when when Jesus says, have I offended you to his detractors, or it's translated as to fall away or to stop following, usually talking about Jesus. So when it says people fell away or they they stopped following Jesus, often this is the, the verb that's behind it. Well, that paints it in a little bit different light, doesn't it? Not following Jesus, of course, is sinful. That, that's a problem. Jesus says that, that, that not believing, that that is sinful. Right? But, but this, this narrows it down as far as what this passage is actually talking about. It's not saying if you do something that, that you know, if you're driving down the road and you're not paying attention and you, you know, don't check over your left shoulder before you change lanes and you cut someone off and then they're just in this sinful tirade, flipping you off, honking at you, swerving at you, you can read their lips, if they're not like thanking you, then it's not better in that situation that you have a millstone tied around your neck. That's not what's going on here. If we put this back in context, it's a little bit, it sheds some more light on this. Remember what just happened. John came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop it because he wasn't following us. And we talked last week about how the us there is is the disciples, not Jesus so much. And what was Jesus' response? No, don't stop him. Don't take such a small view of ministry and tell people to stop doing works in my name because they're not with you. And in light of that, Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones, and it's a different word than children that is used earlier when he took the kid and used him as an object lesson and put him, it's a different word here. So he's not talking about the kids. He's using the common kind of family language of the children of God. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stop following me. That's what's in view here. That's what's in view. If if you cause by your actions, by what you're doing, if you cause someone to turn from me, to stop following me, to fall away from me, then it would be better if you had a great millstone hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Just so we get the picture here, the, the millstone uh, was, was this massive roller rock that would be used to, to grind up grain. And it was so big that, that it took like donkeys or oxen or something to pull it around in this circle. So you put that, and, and, and in the Greek, it, it's not tied around your neck, it's around your neck like a collar. And, and so you do that and you get thrown into the sea, you're done. That's Jesus' point. 
If by your actions, you're causing people to walk away from me, then there's a real problem that we have. There's a real problem that we have. Now, in some ways, that makes us feel a little bit better. Like, okay, cool. So this isn't about me, you know, making someone mad or, or, or doing something. Like, no, that's not what's going on here. This is about making people not follow Jesus. And so in some ways, it's like, okay, whew, good. Because that other seemed real problematic. But I wonder if we were to, to, to stop for a minute and be a little bit more honest about ourselves and our actions. Is there stuff that we do? Is there stuff that we do as Christians that frankly has nothing to do with the gospel, has nothing to do with Jesus Christ, has nothing to do with the kingdom of God, has nothing to do with following him? Is there stuff we do as Christians that leaves such a foul taste in others' mouths that they walk away from the faith. In, in light of all of human history, and especially the last two or three years, we have to say, well, yeah, there is. There is. And that's, that's what this passage is speaking to. That's what this passage is speaking to. See, the problem that the disciples had with the, with the dude that was the, the, the itinerant exorcist that wasn't with them was that he wasn't with them. He wasn't in their group. He wasn't in their tribe. And so they're like, you got to stop doing stuff in Jesus' name. Don't we have the same problem? Aren't we all too willing when someone doesn't line up just exactly with what we say and what we think to all of a sudden start questioning everything about them, including their salvation and whether they even know who Jesus is. We know who John Piper is, a, a great man of faith and a phenomenal preacher. I have heard people because of, of someone that he invited to a conference to speak come to the conclusion, well, he must not be a Christian. Now, it was another Christian that he had invited to this conference to speak. Let me be clear. But we do that kind of stuff all the time. We attach all kinds of things to the gospel, all kinds of things to Christianity, all kinds of things to the kingdom of God, all kinds of things to Jesus that don't belong there. And it leave a, a horribly foul taste in people's mouths such that their response is, if that's what Christianity is about, I'm out. I'm out. What we're doing is what the disciples did. We're not calling people to follow Jesus in all of his grace, yes, in all of his truth. But too often, we're calling people to follow us and our way of thinking, and our ideologies that we've baptized with Christian vocabulary. And they're, they're, they're bright enough that they see through it. And they say, no, that, that's, I'm going to have nothing to do with that. And if that's what Jesus is attached to, I want nothing to do with him either. 
And we've seen people over the last two or three years, and, and not just the last two or three years, but, but it, it's been heightened. We've seen people leave the church for those reasons. And it's not one side or the other. It's not one side of the aisle or the other that, that, that's a failing here. It's all of us. Because you'll hear people say, oh, I don't know how you can be a Christian and vote for this candidate or vote for that candidate. I don't know how you can be a Christian in X, Y, or Z, whatever it may be. When we start attaching things to Jesus, when we start attaching things to the gospel that don't belong there, we're in a place where we need to hear this warning that Jesus is announcing here. If you cause one of these little ones who believes in me to stop following me, it's better for you to get the concrete boots and be thrown into the water and die. Not exactly subtle, is it? But then he, he, he changes a little bit. And it says, by the, by the way, it's not just what you do to others. It's what you do to yourself. And it's the same word. If your hand causes you to sin, if your hand causes you to stop following me, it's better to cut it off. If your foot, better to cut it off. If your eye, better to gouge it out, just tear it out. And, and, and over and over and over, all three times, his point is, it's better to enter the kingdom of God, or it's better to, yeah, to enter the kingdom of God lame or blind than it is to live in this life, being able to see, having both hands, having both feet. Again, if, if we read this just as sin, then like none of us should be sitting here as complete people, frankly. None of us should. We all should have like cut everything off. We just should have. What it's asking is, for us to consider, are, are we buying into stuff? Are we looking into stuff? Are we, are we accepting stuff? Are we entertaining ourselves with stuff that is leading us away from Jesus? That's leading us to, to stop following him. Yes, we shouldn't sin. And yes, we should put appropriate measures in place to keep us from sinning. Not denying that reality, just saying that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, are we leading ourselves astray in what we're buying into, in what we're doing? The, the other key place, one of the other key places that this scandal, uh, scandalizo word is used is in 1 Corinthians. In the passage, it talks about if, if eating or drinking causes your brother or sister to stumble, then, then I won't eat meat and won't drink wine or whatever. The, the, the point there, the, the scandal there, is eating and drinking food that has been sacrificed to idols, and that by doing that, you're saying, hey, it's okay to keep worshiping those idols. That's the point of that passage in Corinthians and Romans. We apply it in all kinds of silly ways that make no sense of the context. That's the passage. It's what you're doing causing people to think idolatry is acceptable. It's okay to go back to worshiping these other gods 
and worshiping Jesus. It's stuff you're doing in your life leading you to a place of thinking idolatry is acceptable. That it's okay to burn your pinch to Caesar and worship Jesus. That it's okay to sell out a little bit over here to appease these people or this group or, 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 or yourself or whatever instead of following Jesus. That's the issue here. And, and, and Jesus is using this heightened language of, of cutting stuff off, not because that's what he literally wants us to do, but because what he wants is for us to understand the weight, the significance, the, understand how grave of a situation it is when we're leading others or ourselves out of following Jesus. He wants us to see how important keeping our eyes fixed on Him and walking after Him is. He, he wants us to understand that if we would follow Him, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. Because there's days, aren't there, that you wake up and you just don't want to follow Jesus. There's days that we wake up and we want nothing to do with walking in Christianity, with walking in Christ by faith. We want everything to do with satisfying our flesh. We want everything to do with pleasing me. We want everything to do with finding comfort for me and happy for me and pleasure for me. Rather than following Christ. And Jesus is reminding us of how little, how little that pleasure, that comfort, and all of those things that we're after, how little they can actually get us. Most of us, I, I venture to say, apart from this passage and, and apart from hearing a sermon on this passage, most of us would, if we were honest, we would really struggle with this idea that no, it's better to enter the kingdom of God lame or without a hand or blind than to have all that stuff in this life. We would, of course, give the right answer and be like, well, yeah, that's what Jesus said. But in the back of our head, probably in the front of our head, we're like, but man, I mean, maybe because I like my hand. And I really like my feet. And I really like being able to see where I'm going. All of those things seem really advantageous and, and seem to allow me to perform kind of the basic functions of life. Jesus is wanting us to see how little this life offers in comparison to following him. That it really is better to lose hand and foot and eye in order to follow Christ than to have all of those things and not be following Jesus. It's, it's better. It's better to, to, to not be making the, the millions of dollars or, or, or the thousands of dollars, whatever stage you're in. It's better to, to not have the riches of this world and the comforts that come with that. And follow Jesus 
than, than to pursue what this world offers and not be following him. I, I want to make a particular application to, to parents here. We need to think clearly. We need to think clearly about what it is and who it is that we're encouraging our kids to follow and pursue. I get it. I've got kids. I've got a whole lot of them. I want them to, to be successful. I want them to have more than I. I want all of those things. But, but there's, this, there's this subtle thing that we can do as parents where we teach our kids to prize the degrees and the jobs and the standard of living and the success and all of these things more than following Jesus. It would be better for them to lose all of that or never have it all in the first place and be following Jesus. Parents, how how do you talk to your kids about life and their future and what you want for them? it's, It's easy to fall into the trap of of wanting the world for your kids and teaching them how to effectively pursue getting that rather than wanting Jesus for them and teaching them how to effectively pursue him. Now, it's it's not wrong to send our kids to college and and hope they get good. Like, it's not that we have to say, okay, well, I want you to have Jesus, so here's what it looks like to live destitute. No. No, but there is a subtle trap there, isn't there? There is a subtle, subtle trap where what we're doing is teaching our children to pursue the world at the expense of pursuing Christ. And it's a trap for us as well, isn't it? It's a trap for us to, to, to pursue the world in our careers and in, in our families and in our, in our pleasures and our vacations and our entertainment and in, in all of these things rather than following Jesus. That's what he's talking about here. That's what he's setting up as the cost of discipleship. It's better to lose all of that and have Jesus than to have all of that or any of that and not have Jesus. So, yeah, it makes it a little bit more comfortable to know that I don't have to cut my hand off, you know, because I got mad and punched a wall or something. But it doesn't necessarily make this any easier, does it? It's still a challenging passage. Because it it drives right at our heart. And that's the problem, isn't it? The, The problem isn't actually my hands or my eyes or my feet. Jesus makes clear that that, that sin, that impurity doesn't come from it comes from within. It's the overflow of the heart. And and so this is why God says in the Old Testament, circumcise your hearts. 
Circumcise the foreskin of your hearts. Because that's what needs to be changed. But we can't do that, can we? We can't do that at all. And that's why he announces that glorious promise in Deuteronomy 30. I will circumcise your hearts. I will do that for you. I will solve the problem. I will take out the heart of stone, Ezekiel, and put in a heart of flesh. I will give you life. Stay attached to me, Jesus says in John 15. Because I'm the vine. And apart from me, you can do nothing. The flesh is no help at all. What Jesus is trying to get his disciples to understand and and, and grapple with and, and buy into is that their life is defined entirely around who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and how we are related to him and how we are identified with him and how our life is found in Him. Because as we sang earlier, all unholy and unclean, I am nothing else but sin. On Thy mercy I rely. Give me Christ, or else I die. That's where we need to be living. That's why, well, while I understand that, that in Christ we're not only sin, I get that. But we still sing that song because what we need to hear over and over and over as the people of God is that our entire life is dependent upon His mercy, is found in Jesus. And that nothing that this world offers can replace that. Nothing that this world offers can undo our sin. We may learn to control our temper better. We may learn through various techniques to control our anxiety better. We may get clean. We may stop looking at porn. We we may learn how to speak respectfully to people. We may do all kinds of things by the means of this world. The Abbott brothers have a great line in, in one of their songs that they're talking about uh, alcohol and, and 12-step programs. He says, I've, I've seen the program make men out of monsters. But it doesn't fix sin. It doesn't remove guilt. It doesn't circumcise a heart. It doesn't give life. And it doesn't give grace. Only Jesus does. And so it's imperative that we follow him and that we lead other people to do the same. Because in him is life. It'd be better to lose all that. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye, with, with, with no hands, with lame than to be thrown into hell with two eyes or with two hands or able to walk where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Here, John, uh, I'm sorry, Mark, or Jesus, is quoting the the, the very last verse of Isaiah, chapter 66, verse 24, where where he says that that, that all the, the holy ones of God will be gathered to him and they'll see those who rebel. 
Those who have rebelled against God. Those who have not followed God. Those who have not walked in His ways, but have walked in another way. They'll see them in this place where the fire is unquenchable and their worm doesn't die. Now, figuring out all the worm language and, and all of this, we don't know exactly all the metaphors. I mean, this is a mixed metaphor on mixed metaphor on mixed metaphor, but we get the point, don't we? Worst situation imaginable. To quote an old movie, thanks. That's all you had to say. Worst environment imaginable. That's Jesus' point. That's Jesus' point. You can be with me, or you can be in hell. It's that stark. It's that stark. And that's hard to hear. That's really hard to hear. But it's the biblical reality. There's Christ who takes judgment for us, who takes our sin away from us, who gives us his righteousness and gives us life. Or there's the judgment and the sin and the wrath that we must bear. The the, the hell language in in Greek here is Gehenna. And Gehenna was this this pit that that in ancient, ancient times uh, was the place, it was outside of what what we know as Jerusalem, and and it was a place where where they would burn uh, the the bodies of those that they had sacrificed. People. Right? and, and, And this fire just burned all the time. And so you can imagine there, there's worms there. The fire, like, it, it was horrible. Well, when, when Israel became Israel, as, as we know it, obviously human sacrifice isn't part of the, the Old Testament religion, right? But, and so Gehenna became this trash. It was the city. It became the city dump where just all the trash was taken to burn. And literally, the fire never went out. It just burned constantly with more and more fuel being added to it. It's Jesus, he says, or that. That's what he wants us to see. That if we follow the ways of this world, if we follow the ways of our flesh, if we follow anything other than Jesus, we're following to him, and whatever it is, we're following it straight to Gehenna, where the fire never ceases, where death is all that exists where there's only decay and it never stops. Then picking up on this fire idea in verse 49, he he switches metaphors entirely to to give this really kind of cryptic statement for everyone will be salted with fire. And, And you read all the commentaries and everybody's like, I mean, yeah, it says that. Here's some options. One option is that the idea here, and and everybody kind of agrees that that this is a statement about the suffering in this life as a Christian. That that we're going to face trials. That that Isaiah 43 is going to be a reality. But that when we pass through the fire, we'll not be burned. Right? So so that's why we sing that song. That's kind of what's behind this. But exactly kind of which metaphorical strings Jesus is pulling together here is, is not entirely clear. Fire is frequently used in the Bible for the trials that we will face 
Salt is frequently used in the Bible for, for preservation. All of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, when, when they were to be brought to be burned, that you brought salt with them. So, so there, there may be atonement pictures here. And, and it's not entirely clear what exactly is going on with, with all of these pictures as far as the details of the metaphor. But we, we do know once again that what Jesus is telling us is follow me. It won't be easy. It won't be easy. You will face fires of trials in this life. But you'll also be preserved. You will be salted with fire. Salt is good, he says, but if if a salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Now, this is a a, a weird statement for us in in our, like, age of, of kind of being able to buy just, like, actual pure you know, whatever salt is, NaCl, sodium chloride. Like you can go to the store and get something that is pretty much just that. Well, back then they couldn't. And, and their salt had all these other minerals in it. And, and so if somehow the, the salt got removed, you would be left with this like pile of, of salty looking stuff, but it would be mostly like gypsum and, and some other minerals. And there wasn't a way to get the salt back in it. So, so that's the idea here. You can just be sprinkling like talc and gypsum, you know, on your whatever food you're eating and it doesn't change the flavor and there's nothing you can do to fix that. You've got to get new salt. That, that's what he's talking about if salt loses its saltiness. That's where that idea comes from. And so he's saying that, that the preserving factor of salt is good. That the preserving factor of, of the refiner's fire is good. All of this is good. But if you lose that preservation, you can't get it back. This has a Hebrews 2 kind of warning passage ring to it, doesn't it? And and it should. So he says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. In other words, going back to this, this exorcist, be at peace with people that aren't following you but are following me. Stop telling them to stop. It's not about you. It's about me. And so be at peace with them. Isn't it true that one of the great frustrations, well, you may not read this kind of stuff. I can tell you that, that, that one of the great frustrations the world has with the church And one of the reasons that people often cite for leaving the church is how Christians are with each other. Is our inability to live at peace with one another. Our willingness to fight and abuse and humiliate and take advantage of one another. And even do it in the name of Jesus. And people say, if that's what this is about, I'm out. If this is about your ministry getting glory and and other people having to stop because they're not with you, Jesus says, no, 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 no. Live at peace with one another. Stop telling people to stop following me 
just because they're not following you. And if you don't, it ends real badly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, that, that he has given his life for us. But Lord, we admit how easy we find it to, to lead ourselves and others into all kinds of other hopes besides Jesus. And, and in doing at times even to lead them away from the comfort of the gospel. Because we think that what the world offers pr- provides a better or more efficient or more acceptable comfort. Father, teach us to repent of this. That we might follow Jesus even if it means losing this world. And that we might teach others to do the same. We ask this in Christ's most precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of Scripture and theology.